it is my pleasure to introduce a friend of mine uh, who's going to be our preacher today. His name is the Reverend Dave Crispell, and he and his wife Amber have been really good friends of mine uh, for a while now in Durham. Um, Dave is from Durham originally, and we met while in seminary at Duke Divinity School, and Dave was a classmate of of mine, um, also our player coach on our softball team, and uh, among other things, and, and more recently, the hats he's been wearing um, have been uh, as a dad um, to Asher, who's downstairs, downstairs, and, uh, and soon to be another one um, right after us, and then uh, also as the athletic director um, of uh, Lakewood Montessori Middle School right across the street here. Um, and slash bus driver, concession runner, coach, etc. Um, uh, also, Dave has has been wearing the hat as uh, with Amber, founders and directors of Jubilee Home in Durham, and I'm sure he'll he'll tell you a little bit more about Jubilee Home. But um, it was really cool as I knew Dave uh, in school to see this budding passion in him, this growing. Uh, desire and call uh, to serve um, uh, folks associated with our, our local um, uh, jail system, uh, essentially. Uh, his, uh, while in school, he got in some classes and kind of got, um, kind of got him hooked and, and called him to, to this prison ministry as he studied in uh, some of our local prisons. And, and Jubilee Home uh, seeks to to serve. Uh, some of the the young men who will um, age out or in some cases be spit out by our local um, system. Uh, so Dave, Dave will tell you a little bit more about Jubilee Home um, and, and what they're doing here. So uh, give Dave a round of applause as we welcome him this morning. Thank you. That was far better than I deserved. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Um, I don't get to preach too often. Um, my other hats don't don't really allow that, but uh, I enjoy it, and I really appreciate the chance to dive in the Word with you guys and explore it. Um, I didn't plan on saying anything else about Jubilee Home, but with that intro, I feel like I should. So, um, and and honestly, Oak Church and the Gathering Church have both been very generous to Jubilee Home. Um, and their involvement and their giving in particular. So um, you guys deserve to hear uh, some of what we're doing. So Jubilee Home is a, is a transitional home for guys coming out of the juvenile system. Um, juvenile system doesn't work like the adult system. You don't have a release date. Um, sort of a team of people decide when you're going to be released, um, whether you're ready or not. And um, if you come from a home that uh, maybe led you to the path to incarceration, that's still where you're going back because that's how the system works. And there's not a lot of alternatives in the state of North Carolina. So Jubilee Home seeks to be an alternative, um, a, an option in between a destructive home and incarceration that can uh, get some guys on their feet and then let them uh, become the men they need to be to live in independence. So that's what we do there. Um, but again, thank you, uh, Chris, for having me. Thank you, Oak Church, for having me. And I'm excited to explore this. I'm excited for us to, to look into what does it mean to be rooted and grounded in love. That's, that's the, the task that Oak Church has set upon this, this summer. Um, 
And, uh, and today we're going to look at the first chapter of Ephesians. We're going to look, um, I think Chris started it last week. Um, and just for the record, I think he covered sort of the, the vagueness of authorship and maybe where this letter is going to. And um, I'm just going to stick with the ease. I'm going to assume Paul and Ephesians and um, see what that means for us. Uh, so I hope that doesn't offend anyone. Um, if it does, uh, sorry. So, so our task today is to explore Ephesians um, and this rooted and grounded in love idea. So I'm going to let um, Lindsay come up. She's going to read the scripture for us, and then we're going to dive in. Sorry, that's super tiny print. Uh, yeah, so it's that. Or you can take over there. I don't care. It's up to you. <laughs> This is Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. Since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, this is the reason that I don't stop giving thanks to God for you when I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, will give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation that makes God known to you. I pray that the eyes of your heart will have enough light to see what is the hope of God's call. What is the richness of God's glorious inheritance among believers? And what is the overwhelming greatness of God's power that is working among the energy, or wait, working among us believers? The power is conferred by the energy of God's powerful strength. God's power was at work in Christ when God raised him from the dead and sat him at God's right side in the heavens. Far above every ruler and authority and power and angelic power, any power that might might be named not only now but in the future. God put everything under Christ's feet and made him head of everything in the church, which is his body. His body, the church, is the fullness of Christ, who fills everything in every way. Thank you. This section of the letter to Ephesians, uh, it's, not, it's not simple. Nothing, nothing in the letters is simple, but uh, it's simple in that it's Paul's prayer for the church or the churches of this region. This is, this is Paul praying over the church that he's sending this letter to. And Paul starts his prayer, as, as he often does, as many of us often do, with thanksgiving for the church, uh, their faithfulness, their work in the community. But then he quickly kind of moves into where he, he wishes this church to go, his desires for this congregation. And it's, it's pretty revealing. Paul, Paul prays that Jesus will grant the church wisdom and revelation, and that those will allow them to grow deeper in faith through intimacy with God. So it's not enough for them to be faithful. It's not enough for them to be doing well with the brothers and sisters. Uh, it's necessary for them to be going deeper, always growing in their faith. And this, this kind of reminds me, um, we, we, uh, we moved into an apartment that allowed us to garden maybe four or five years ago. And my dad um, is a horticulturist. He knows one or two things about plants. 
he told me this wisdom and nugget, this, this nugget of wisdom that didn't really like have anything to do with anything to me at the time. Uh, but he said when we were trying to start these gardens and sort of having some failures and getting frustrated, he said, well, it's a plant. And it's either growing or it's dying. And there's no in between. And likewise, I think the church is the same. I think individual churches like the Oak Church and the Church Universal are the same. We're either growing in depth and in quality with one another and with God and with our community, or we're dying. Paul recognizes we can't simply just reach a good place and celebrate how awesome we are in our faithfulness, uh, but we must continue this journey. C.S. Lewis, for those of you who, who read the Chronicles of Narnia, um, he uses the language of further up and further in. And that's even his vision of sort of heaven, that this journey continues, that we're always becoming closer and closer to one another and to God. And that's, that's the end goal, this closeness, this, this further up and further in, always growing or dying. In our plant metaphor, we can, we'll extend it a little further. I may push this plant metaphor a little far, just so you know, um, just to be prepared. Uh, uh, we're going to push it a little here, though, and we're going we're gonna to try to fit us into this picture, okay? So, so plant, it's always trying to live, you know, it's, it's trying to survive, it's growing, it's producing leaves. Um, these leaves, you know, they're used to feed the fruit that matures, and eventually the fruit feeds the seed so that the plant can reproduce, or it feeds us. Um, it feeds, sorry about that, um, it feeds the rest of us um, with nourishment. But the plant, the plant can't do all of this uh, on its own. The plant needs water, sunlight, nutrients from the soil, sometimes pruning. It has to have all these things to reach its peak health. The plant's always working. It's you know, photosynthesizing, turning sunshine into sugar so that it can eat. Um, it's sending its roots deeper in search of better nutrients, more water, uh, and it's producing this fruit. But it's got to be cared for by the gardener. And Paul, Paul really wants to focus on that aspect. It, he really wants to look at the work of kind of God the gardener here. We still have to produce the fruit. I don't want to lose that. That's, that's a tension. We're always doing our part. But Paul really wants us to think about the impetus for uh, our growth. And us being able to recognize God's role in this ecosystem, that's where Paul goes um, next in this scripture. Paul's prayer continues. I pray that the eyes of your heart will have enough light to see what is the hope of God's call, the richness of God's glorious inheritance, and what is the overwhelming greatness of God's power that is working amongst believers. So, so God refocuses on, or Paul refocuses on God. This light, this light is a gift of God, and the gift that it gives us is intimacy, recognition. Paul wants us to recognize 
the wonder, the goodness of what it is to be under the care of such a curator. And this, this relationship, this closeness with the gardener, this intimacy is important to Paul. This, you can hear in his words here, he's sort of building for us to recognize how close our relationship with God is. He starts with the language of call, the hope of God's call. But then we move into the richness of God's inheritance. So we're becoming family. We're in the will. It's good news. And then finally, God's power that is working amongst us. We're not an arm's distance apart. God's with us, here now, among us. It's not a lab tech, you know, it's not, it's not someone observing a plant and making notes about it um, in a greenhouse, in a sterile environment. It's a, it's a gardener that's planted us intentionally, continues to nourish us, cultivate us, waiting for us to bear that good fruit, excited to see what that fruit looks like. And right now, in this current time, this is, this is a picture that I love of God. I've, I've never really spent a lot of time thinking about God as the gardener. It's, it's a pretty big image in the Bible. We start in the Garden of Eden. We end in a garden in Revelation. Um, Jesus appears as a gardener to Mary straight out of the tomb. It's, it's a big deal in the Bible, but uh, we don't have to think about gardeners and stuff if we don't want to. Back in first century Israel, food was life. They had to think about that. Where was food coming from? How we get food? Um, this metaphor is probably more powerful to them than it is us. But right now, I actually find myself really connected to this metaphor of God as a gardener. And you guys know what's going on outside. It's 1,000 degrees outside right now. It's been like that for like two weeks. It's rained only occasionally. Um, and it's, the worst part is it's early June. It's not the end of July or early August. And um, our little small garden, this is like its moment. Early June is when you get your first fruits. The like, best a plant is going to be all year long is early June in North Carolina. And right now, conditions are not conducive to that. And so I've spent so much time the last couple of weeks kind of serendipitously both going through this passage and watering these plants twice a day. And moving them from sun in the morning to shade in the afternoon back to sun in the morning and picking out any tiny little thing that might be a weed and suck up some nutrients and water um, in, in a way that, that I don't generally care for our plants. I mean, I, I, I enjoy our tomato plants, but uh, I don't usually like fret over them like I have been these last few weeks. And so this picture of God as kind of this gardener fretting over us, preparing us to bear our great fruit, it's, it's really lovely to me. Um, and I, I recognize that um, I just sort of tied myself metaphorically to God. I don't, uh, and that's problematic in some ways. You know, I'm, I'm not God. We're not God. Uh, but at the same time, I, I think it's powerful to recognize that when we get to partake in creation, um, when, we get to, when we get to give something nutrition and bring it to life and beauty, uh, those are moments when we get to share in the creative acts of God. Those are moments when I think maybe we are a touch of God. We're reflecting that, that Imago Dei, the image of God that we've been created in. So uh, 
I don't want you to hear like, oh, that guy said he was God in his garden. <laughs> but at the same time, uh, I do want to recognize when we are raising a tomato plant or working a pottery wheel or raising a child, uh, we are close to God in a unique way, um, in a blessed way that many people maybe never get to realize. So finally, this scripture, um, the scripture kind of ends with what I would consider kind of a characteristic rhetorical flourish. Um, Paul or whoever wrote this letter in his name was trained in this kind of Greek way of speaking. And it kind of makes everything an argument. Nothing, nothing is just sort of taken at will. He can't just say something and have us be like, oh yeah, that sounds good, Paul, that's cool. Um, he really has to kind of prove it to you. Um, and I think this is where Paul gets intimidating and kind of, kind of messy a lot of times. We don't, we don't take this approach outside of maybe the courtroom nowadays. And so uh, sometimes it feels like Paul's kind of beating us over the head with this point. And he sort of does that here. Um, but he does so because he thinks it's worth understanding the intimate relationship we share with God. Um, and he tries to display that for us by reviewing the miracle of Easter and its consequences. So Paul tells the churches, God's power was at work in Christ when God raised him from the dead and sat him at God's right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and angelic power, any power that might have been named, not only now, but in the future. Now, I can't, I can't speak for you guys, um, but here Paul's talking about the resurrection of Christ, and resurrection makes me a little finicky, a little uncomfortable, I'm, I'm, if I'm frank. I would rather not really think about what does it mean that God was raised from the dead. What, what would it mean literally if God was raised from the dead? I would, I would probably just like to tell you guys, and Jesus came back. Awesome. Uh, but for Paul, that doesn't work. For Paul, this, this resurrection, it's, it's the entire key of this sort of ecosystem of surviving and thriving. It's in the resurrection of Christ that the church is begotten. The seed with which our seedling, the church, is hatched is this single, miraculous, defiant act. After Jesus is executed by the state, the disciples, they, they get out of there. They go into hiding. Most of them don't even make it to the cross. They're in the garden. They see the guards out. And that's the point, right? That's why you kill Jesus. You kill the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. It's a strategy throughout world history. It's not, um, it's not a secret. Uh, it still goes on today. Um, Frequently, I think. Uh, and here, it, it seems to work. It seems to work. Everyone gets out of there. The authorities who are so afraid that this group of people are going to cause trouble, a riot, an overthrowing. You know, Jesus just came into town on this donkey, and the whole town blew up. Everyone's yelling. They're waving palm branches. They're laying things in front of him. And the authorities are like, eh, what is this? Who is this guy? that they think this. We're, we're in charge here, but this is the guy getting a parade. 
And so they kill Jesus. They end the parade. They end the party. But then Jesus defies expectation. He rises from the tomb. He presents his bodily self to the disciples. He walks with them down the road to Emmaus, discussing scripture with them. He appears to Mary in the garden outside the tomb and greets her. He sits on the beach with the disciples that were fishermen and enjoys their catch with them, eats a meal with them. See, with his bodily presence and these actions, he says and shows, there's a greater power than those synagogue leaders who convicted me. There's a greater power than the Roman Empire that crucified me. There's a greater power even than death. This is the seed of the church. Suddenly, the disciples are back together, not in a dark room, not with the doors closed. They're in the synagogues preaching. They're in the middle of the square, receiving the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues to all the nations. And of course, we, we just reenacted this as a church, right? We're, we're at the point in the liturgical season where we've just celebrated Easter and the resurrection and the ascension and Pentecost. And so we know this language. But I think after 2,000 some odd years, um, after the enlightenment and sort of this new critical way of thinking of logic and science and um, changing sort of the way we understand the world to work, I think it's much more comfortable, easy for us to just sort of go through the motions of Easter and Pentecost and sort of say the words and uh, maybe not comprehend it as an event, as a happening. But Paul, Paul puts everything, everything, on his belief that this resurrection was historical, factual. In fact, he would argue it's the whole reason we're here this morning. We have come as a body to worship, and we come week after week to worship because of this event, this resurrection this thing that sets science on its end, this thing that, that turned upside down the way we know the world works. You're born, you grow, you live, you die. And this, this event that has, that has thrown that you know, given, death and taxes, right? Those are the two givens in the world. And this is thrown out like the best cliche that we have as a society. And for, for Paul, we can't, even, we can't even see the world without looking through the lens of resurrection. That colors our every moment. It colors our worship. It's why we love our neighbor. It's why we hold no gods above our God. And Paul has pretty good reason to be passionate about this, if you think about it. So Paul's history, uh, he, studies, he studies to be a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi. Um, seems to be uh, pretty smart, I would guess. Uh, his letter's he's over my head, so um, whatever that's worth. And he, he becomes this rabbi, and he's really about it, man. That's, that is his calling, and he loves it. And right when he's becoming a rabbi, these, these Christians are kind of popping up in the synagogue, and they're a little bit of a problem. They're saying that this guy rose from the dead and that he's the Savior the Jews have been waiting for, and we should follow him. And, 
and not all the Jews feel that way. And Paul's one of these Jews that does not feel that way. Um, and he goes out of his way to let Christians know uh, that he doesn't feel that way. He, in fact, um, it's been recorded in the Bible, he oversees the killing of Christians. And so, so that's Paul's background. And then he has this conversion experience, and God comes and talks to him, and he becomes this great evangelist. He, he's, I mean, half the New Testament is written by this guy. At least half, I don't know. I, I, I would guess probably more, maybe. But he's out there. We have recordings of trips all around the world, and not like getting on JetBlue and flying over there, like taking years at a time to put himself in danger to walk down dusty roads to get boarding on ships that may or may not like him. Um, all these things. And now, sort of towards the end, Paul's here, and he's experienced this growth of the church. And not only that, he sees his own self where he was. He sees Peter, who was a terrorist, a religious extremist. He sees Mark, who ran from Paul's first trip um, as a father of the church now. He sees Mary Magdalene, who the townspeople at least speculated was a prostitute, whether she was or not. And he sees that these are the founding fathers and mothers. These are the foundation that we've built this organization on. And it's not just in Jerusalem. When this letter is going to the church in Ephesus, the, the fruits of resurrection have already spread through current day Israel, Iraq, Iran, Northern Africa, Turkey, into Greece, Italy, Spain. In 50 years, Paul has witnessed this unbelievable expansion of life of growth, of depth. And so the resurrection probably doesn't seem that crazy to him. He has good reason to push and prod the church to understand Ephesus. The soil is perfect right now. Water, sun, they're plentiful. Now is not the time to be dormant. Now is the time to grow deeper, larger, produce fruit. Now is the time to study, to contemplate, to act in your community. And Paul knows, Paul knows that the best way to do this, the best fertilizer for us to grow, for us to love one another, for us to be deeper in relationship with God, is to recognize God and Jesus for everything he was and is now. And so Paul kind of tops off his argument with a new sort of post-resurrection world order. He says... God put everything under Christ's feet, made him head of everything in the church, which is his body. His body, the church, is the fullness of Christ, who fills everything in every way. Now, again, I'm going to stretch our metaphor here and probably dope Paul's point, but this order of abundance can kind of be summed up. Paul, Paul's trying to say here, you know, there's, God, and God is the gardener, and we're the church, we're this, you know, tomato plant trying to bear fruit, and the fruit we bear is for the world. And it's, it's not that simple. Um, I recognize that. These lines are blurred. Uh, I, have, I have a real problem saying that, you know, God has chosen us, and we're special, we're better than our non-Christian brothers and sisters. I have, I have a real problem saying that. Um, 
and the lines between us and the world are pretty blurry too. Uh, I would be willing to bet within these walls now there are liars and thieves and cheaters and addicts and all kinds of things inside of us. And yet here we are. Um, here we are as a body. And it's a heavy burden that we've been called to, to be sort of in the world, with the world, and produce fruit for the world. Uh, we read the lament earlier about the happenings in Charleston. Um, and I, I think that event, that event really, it makes clear the depths of the poverty in ourselves and in the world. Um, I spent three years in Charleston out of high school. I went to the College of Charleston. My freshman dorm uh, on one side overlooks Marion Square. And Caddy Corner to McAllister dorm in Marion Square is Mother Emanuel AME Church. Uh, as news broke here, I guess Thursday morning was when most people probably became aware of it. Um, in Charleston, I felt, a, I felt an odd connection and disconnection. Charleston's a weird place. It's a funny town. The biggest places in Charleston to have your wedding, to have big celebrations, are Middleton Place, Drayton Hall, and Boone Hall. All three of those are plantations still standing and celebrated. A couple of the high schools in Charleston are named after other plantations. Charleston is a town separated, not just by the tracks, but by tiers of markers that even as a freshman in college, a freshman from a town that has markers but not quite like this, uh, I could recognize black people live north of the crosstown. White people live south of it. Rich people live south of Calhoun. Really rich people live south of Broad. Names like the Bushes, for example. Charleston's a strange place. It, it thrives on the idea that it's still 1850. Um, and as a white person who lived in Charleston and loved Charleston, Charleston's the first time I realized I could love a place. It's the first time that I really felt like where I was mattered to me. I still miss the pluff mud, the salt air. I still miss cobblestone streets with gas lamps. But when that, this went down this week, um, I, was, I was bothered by the fact that I lived 100 feet from this church. I know where it is. I can picture it. But I've never stepped foot in that church. I've never even thought of stepping foot in that church. Because I, I'm white. I mean, as crazy and simplistic as that sounds, uh, that's a real barrier. And that's a real barrier in me that, that I felt like as a failure. And so, as I reflect on what it means to produce fruit in a world that's starving, as I reflect on the burden of that is, with Charleston in the back of my mind, I see how desperate the world is. The, the world is desperate for us as a church we have to be a counter to violence. And not only that, we have to be counter to violence inside of a country 
that was, if we're honest with each other, founded in violence. And the world is desperate for the church to counter racism. And if we're honest with each other, most Sunday mornings, the most segregated institution in America is the church. And the world is desperate. The world is desperate for the church to stand up and love Dylan Roof. The world is desperate for the church to pray for Dylan Roof. And more than that, pray for the conditions that led to him making such a decision and such an act. It's a, it's a scary thing, a heavy thing, to produce fruit in a world that's starving. But Paul wants us to hear the good news in all of this. The good news is that the burden is not ours alone. The good news is that God is a good gardener. He waits eagerly as we sprout up, as we shoot some leaves out, as we produce a little white flower. God waits as that little white flower turns into that small little green kind of bubble and begins to turn orange and fill out And finally, finally, God celebrates. God probably shouts for joy when he sees that bright red tomato that's been produced on our plant. And all the while, he's there feeding us, watering us, putting the shade out when it's ridiculous. So what does it mean? What does it mean to cultivate roots, be grounded in love? For Paul's, For Paul's view, it means recognizing God's work through Jesus in the resurrection. Realizing, realizing, and this this is the great part, realizing the soil that we're in has already been prepared. And that the seed that we're growing out of, our lineage as a church, as a people, as a body, it's the best lineage there can be. We come from a great pedigree a great pedigree that has produced much great fruit. So it's not easy, but it's doable. And we're called to it. And the world's desperate for us to produce. Thanks be to God. Um, I'm going I'm to close us out in prayer. Um, as we as we move into the next time of our worship here, <sighs> Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this body of people um, that we get to come and participate and worship you with. We thank you for uh, Paul and those people who feel the need to write and explain and show love uh, through the ages, be it. In the Bible, or you know, a letter from our grandpa, or, uh, all the ways that we have been nourished and fed and prepared for our work as a body, even the ones we've never seen or heard or even known about. Uh, Lord, we do pray for Charleston. We we pray for peace, but we also pray for strength. Strength to be voices calling in the dark, strengths for t- to, to speak truth and not 
hide our issues in languages of politics or hate crimes. Lord, you have, you have placed us in this soil. You have raised us and you continue to raise us and we are so grateful for that. And we look forward uh, to producing that ripe and tender fruit. We love you, Lord. Amen.